0: visit the all-in-gospel.com website. We will be in Deuteronomy 25 tonight. It says, if there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows, 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother may be humiliated in your sight. So there will be touching. Um, So at this point, as we hit Deuteronomy 25, we have the full law of Moses. We really do. Deuteronomy 25 and 26 are the last two chapters of the legal section. And you've got these kind of odd little things that I, well, we'll get into in a little bit, but the things that they're supposed to observe have, from chapter 12, 1 through the end of chapter 24, are kind of the worship law, the civic law, and the regular law that have kind of been carried through. So chapter 12 to chapter 16 was ceremonial laws and how we relate to God. Chapter 16 to chapter 20 was the national and federal laws and setting up a three-branch government and everything else. And then from 21 through 26 are the interpersonal or local laws, how things get run within the city. So we're at these last kind of city pieces, which are a guide for the judges and how the judges should do things. So way back in chapter 12, verse one, it says, these are the statutes and judgments, which you shall observe to do in the land, which the Lord God of thy fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Everything between that verse 12, one through the end of 26, you can say is just for the Israelites while they live in the land. And there's a lot of churches that do that and a lot of belief systems that do that. But I hope as we've gone through it, in each one of them, you see a little aspect of what God is like and God's heart towards people in each one of those things. And there's been a few of them that kind of really point to what Jesus really did in the cross as our sacrifice and atoning for us and justifying us. As we now get a general statute or a broad guideline for things, um, you can you can get to these things and say, well, that's just the law. And you can minimize the law if you want to. Or what came to me when I was praying about it was Gimli, as they come into Moria, and they, and they say, so this is a mine. And he laughs and says, a mine. They call it a mine. And it's far from a mine. It's dwarven heaven is what it is. And one way to look at the law is to say it's just the law. But as a believer or somebody where God's touched your heart, you think the law, they call it the law. It's so much more than the law. It's what God has given us to reveal his character to us. So that makes these first few verses a little tough, right? They're a little more than just sundry things. So I think some of the Bibles entitle this section like, like miscellaneous or sundry or something. And I would argue chapter 25 is so much more than that. It's so much bigger um, because it gives, as an entire chapter, as one kind of passage, it gives us the principle of justice and judgment and mercy and grace all in one chapter. And it lays it out legally, which I think is just amazing. So verse 1, if there's a dispute between men and they come to court, uh, men there, by the way, is generalizable. Women can have disputes too. Um, and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Okay, this is almost like the Shema in chapter six. There's so much packed into this verse and principles of how things are going to run. Starting with the first one or the first principle we pull out of this, um, there's so much more than the law here. First principle that you can take from that sentence is that judges may judge. Do you see that? God's intent for humanity is that humanity will manage itself, that there is such a thing as judgment, and God actually expects justice, and he wants it to be fair judgment. So there is the just to justify when they judge, or the right to condemn the wicked, and to justify things. So there is judgment, principle number one, there is such a thing as judgment. And that's tough for some people, and we live in kind of an era where people are trying to step around that, Um, But people love to whip out this verse, and I think some of you might already be thinking it because it's so hyped up and overused that we have to wrestle with it. Luke 6, verse 37. Judge not, lest you be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you should be forgiven, right? So we're not supposed to judge if you take that one verse and pull it out of the Bible. Yet throughout the rest of the Bible, God expects humans to judge. And he wants elders. He wants people kind of put into that position. He wants to call out his judges. Uh, We have entire books called Judges uh, where God picks people. So I'll read the rest of Luke uh, in just a second um, and come back to that, where even in that chapter six of Luke, God assumes judgment is happening. Like that's not saying don't ever judge. It's saying you don't have to if you don't want to. But notice the word in verse one of our chapter, it says may that judges may judge people. It's not a command that we have to judge people. But it is a situation, especially in civic life, that judges may pass judgment on people and move things on. So throughout the Bible, there are two things. There are judges that judge and there is a God that judges. And those things can be kind of scary. God expects discernment because he's got perfection. So when humans do judging, it can be imperfect judgment. When God does judging, it's perfect judgment. So another way to think of this, this humanity judging, angels are never in a position of judgment. This is an interesting kind of like hierarchical thing in the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, it says that at one point in the future, humans will judge the angels, but there is judgment and it does happen. So people that don't accept judgment then are also guilty of presumption, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 17, verse 12, In fact, the consequence of not accepting the judgment of a human judge is actually the death penalty, because you're messing up the order of things if you don't accept judgment. So that idea that there is judgment is a tough one to grapple with, but this verse one, that principle is built right into it. There is judgment. Here's the second principle in that first verse, that they justify the righteous. So the justify word there, sadak, um, is a verb. It's to become something or to turn into something. So um, if you justify someone, you make them straight is the literal meaning of that word. So, so at some point, if you and I have a conflict, and we have someone judge that conflict, and they judge one of us right, probably you, the judge actually makes that straight. Kind of like when somebody like asks you after an argument, so are we good? And you say, yeah, we're good. Only someone else can make that good when you've wrecked something. So, another human or a judge has to make things straight, or the word justify, sadak in the Hebrew. So, there's this principle here that justice can only be declared by someone other than the person. These judges in verse 1 are justifying people and they're making things right and straight. So, along with the substitutional principles of Leviticus, you can substitute something else in for your punishment. This becomes massive theological stuff that sets up the whole New Testament, all the prophets and their judges and the rest of the Bible. Because you can substitute for punishment and you have judges and judgment that happens where things can be substituted for you. And that's kind of God's law and how he sets it up. Punishment then, or forgiveness, are the end of it. Once this case is taken care of, once something's been judged, you're either made straight or you're condemned and punished. And the punishment has an ending to it. So this is mercy in some ways. It doesn't read like that in the first few sentences because you're putting the person down and whipping them, right? But when the whipping's done, it's over. And notice how this law constrains the whipping. Because outside of the Jewish community, like when Jesus was whipped, there was no mercy. And he is whipped a lot more than 40 times to the point where he was not recognizable anymore as a human. So think about what this law does, that it actually limits the wrath of humanity when it comes to punishment and judges. Because we don't know how to judge fairly and justly. And we don't know how to contain ourselves when we're in wrath. So that idea that there's punishment, that's the end of it, or forgiveness, that's the end of it. And that's where God says your sins are thrown as far as the east is from the west, because at the end of the punishment, we're good. And there's nothing more to be done with it. So when Jesus, Isaiah 53, verse 5, was wounded for our transgressions, when he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That comes straight from Deuteronomy 25 or 6. Which one are we in? 25. That comes straight from here. Because there's the stripes are whips or the marks that you get from being whipped. So that judgment that's passed on to our substitutional sacrifice actually makes us good with God. We're straight, we're justified. Romans 3.24, being justified, exact same concept in the Greek, freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, substitutional. Romans 8.33, if God justifies, who can condemn? So if God has said we're good, who can then come and condemn you? And really the Bible argues that Satan or the enemy is there ready to condemn you and say what you've done wrong, but there's nothing to condemn you for because you've already been justified. You've been made right. This is just really cool stuff. So despite the fact that we're wicked people and that we have a punishment coming, we need someone else to justify us. We need someone else to call us justified because in our sin, we can't call ourselves justified. We just don't have that ability. So principle number three, I just, I'm sorry, I really geeked out on these verses. Because so much is here. Principle number three notice the phrase, condemn the wicked. On the other side of justification, there's an alternative. There's the wicked. And that means there's no neutral party. When two people or a dispute comes up, us versus God or us versus another human, there are either the justified or the wicked. There is no neutral in a, in a dispute. When there's a broken relationship, you're either both guilty or one of you are guilty and one of you is justified. That's how it works. So, at a very practical level, uh, there's no such thing as purgatory. You're either justified or you're, or you're condemned. It does, there's no halfway point in that. And think of what this does, just super practical. There, because of the law against false witnesses, they don't have a lot of court cases in ancient Israel. They just don't. Because when you go to court, even if you're the accuser, you stand a chance of being called wicked because both parties are on trial in a court case in Jewish law. That is totally unfamiliar in the United States of America. Our court system doesn't work that way anymore. But in the Jewish court system, somebody in a dispute is going to be declared wicked, and they will be punished. And it's not determined who that party is before they come in. They don't have plaintiffs and defendants. They have two people coming in as a dispute. One of them's wicked, one of them's justified, or they're both wicked. And they both get punished. If you bear false witness, the death penalty is what you have in store for you. So you don't bring people to court if you don't have to if you can settle that dispute and make shalom outside the courts you don't bring things to the courts and we've seen that in the law before where it says the point of this is everybody else can see what happens and then we don't have court cases or we don't have the iniquity so the wicked here condemn the wicked is actually they just double the word rasha, rasha. And that's an emphasis phrase in the Hebrew, which is kind of interesting because one way to translate that would be they're going to disturb the disturbers or they're going to wrong the wrongers or they're going to wicked the wickeds because they just say rasha, rasha. So we translate it, condemn the wicked, um, but they're going to do wicked to the person who has done wicked. So it's this concept of matching what has been done. And we see that in the verse two, that it's according to their guilt in verse two that that wicked happens. So you're either righteous or not. False accusations are probably not a good thing in this kind of world. And it's not really up to the judge to have a neutral party. They have to judge wicked and justified. Those are the two options the law gives them. So then it shall be, verse two, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, which, and it says if, there was may in the first sentence, and now there's an if, It could be the judge could say, you're wicked, but no no punishments necessary here. You've already paid your dues. So they could do time served. The if there makes it so that a judge doesn't have to judge with a punishment if they don't want to. They have the option of showing mercy. But if they deserve to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. So, Judges apply what is earned, thus the word deserved is in there, to return a right balance or order. If someone has transgressed or done something wrong, the idea is to repair it and make it right again. So if you've stolen something, you return what's stolen plus some extra. Remember that law? If you've murdered somebody, you're about to be killed. That's the death penalty. So these are the cases that don't require the death penalty, which we had in the previous chapters. These are cases where the punishment would be less than that. Um, So one question we could have for, for, for this is, have I served or done rightly by God according to his law? And the great danger of humanity is that we do things according to our law, and then we decide if we're good with God or not. But now that we're at the end of the law in Deuteronomy, the question is, have you followed the law in such a way that God would see that you're justified? Or have you followed the law in the way that you can follow it? And we know from Romans, the answer is like, no, like we should all honestly say, yeah, we haven't met up to the full standard of this law. Cause at some point or another, we've done it our own way versus God's way, which breaks the relationship with God, which means that we have a, 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 a conflict between us and God that needs to be tried or judged. Revelations 20 says, everybody's going to stand before the white throne of judgment and your life will be put in front of you and you will be judged. So then the question is, when you're in that moment at the throne of judgment, how's your judgment going to be? Luke 12, verse 7. Same chapter that the judge not, lest you be judged. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to the will shall be beaten with many stripes, coming from Deuteronomy. But he who did, did not know yet, committed things deserving stripes, will be beaten with a few. So, if Luke's arguing that there's beatings that are going to happen right in the same thought flow of the judge not thing, Luke's talking about the, I, the may and the if. There can be mercy here. You don't have to judge other humans. But when you get to your master, that doesn't preclude the fact that there will be judgment. Just because we as humans decide to not judge one another doesn't mean that we won't be judged. Luke makes it very clear, but people love the first verse, which is don't judge anybody but they forget the second one that we're not accountable to each other. We're accountable to God Almighty who will judge us. And the servants that know their master will have deserving more punishment than those people that never knew their master. Say people that were, you know, pygmies in, in Brazil or something. God's going to judge according to how people have known him and what they've done in their life. So this isn't really seeker-friendly Jesus stuff at the first half of this chapter. Second half will be more seeker-friendly. But the first half is like, dude, you're going to get judged. It's coming, and it's coming your way. Principle number four from the first few verses. According to your guilt is the principle of commensurate judge justice, which I think we do carry out here in America. There are different punishments for different crimes, and there's no such thing as cruel and unusual punishment. The punishment should never exceed the crime that happened. And we've already seen a long list of crimes that just deserve the death penalty. And the death penalty is quick and fast, and it's ugly because it's carried out by the people doing the accusing. But things that are less than a death penalty, there's nothing cruel or unusual here. It's going to be judged based on how it fits the crime. Um, Principle number five, justice is immediate. Notice that it says in his presence. So the justice or the distribute, distributing of the punishment happens immediately at the trial of the court case. This is the right to a swift and speedy trial that we've virtually abandoned in the United States. That punishment happens right now. And you don't have to sit and wait. When our kids were really little, we were vicious parents this way. The very few times that our awesome kids had to get a spanking, the punishment is in the waiting. It's not in the spanking. By the time we got to the spanking, it was like a kind of thing. It wasn't like a deal. But by the time we got there, they're already just totally in tears and bawling because it was the anticipation of the spanking that was the hard thing. It wasn't the spanking. So you don't hit in anger. And as a parent, you're waiting for the conscience to develop in those moments. Um, God's the same way. You have a when there's punishment that's going to happen, God's going to make it fairly quick. There will be judgment, there will be punishment. It's going to happen quick and fast, and it won't be cruel and unusual or anything like that. Thus, the weird weird images of hell having all these magnificent torture mechanisms—I'm not so sure that that's God's image of what's happening there, right? But it's not a good thing to be judged, so let's try to avoid that. Verse three: Forty blows he may give him, and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. The sixth principle from this justice thing. And these are principles because this isn't exactly a case. God's laying out like a principle for all other court cases here. And one is this, there are limits to punishment, and the point of punishment is not to humiliate the human being or take away their dignity. Now look at Roman punishment. It was the point was to take away their dignity and to reduce them to slime. But in Jewish courts, that wasn't the point. The point of punishment wasn't to humiliate a person. It was to make things right and correct the balance. And it was just a different way of looking at it. So the consequence then is taken care of, and once the consequence is there, oh, I even have this in here. Psalm 103 12. As far as the East is from the West, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, the punishment sets you free from guilt. Again, back to kids' spankings. Once the spanking is over, the kids could have as much hug and cuddle time as they wanted until they were good to go do other things. And there were occasions, Grant especially, wanted to cuddle for almost an hour afterwards because we wanted him to know that we love him more than we had to do the punishment with him that the punishment was not fun for us either, and we hated that moment. But what we want is we want to never have that action happen again, because we love him and we care about him. So I think the same thing's true with God. Immediately after the the forgiveness, or immediately after the punishment that we don't even have to take, when you just accept that Jesus took your punishment for you, God will give you as much love as you need in his presence and under his wing until you feel like you're ready to go on with your life. And you meet a new believer, and there's that joy and that release because they're forgiven, and it's over, and the transgressions are gone and taken care of. And there's this just freedom in that that feels amazing because the burden that was on your shoulders is gone. Unless you want to keep yourself in those chains, but there's no reason for you to do that. God's forgiven it, and it's gone because the punishment's been done. So when the punishment's in the past tense, that effect is immediate. And with substitutionary law, that's the effect we feel when we have this. The point isn't to humiliate a person. The point is to free the person so they can go on with their life and not feel like everybody thinks they need punishment. They've taken their punishment. And if we've watched people get whipped, I hope you haven't, but maybe in the films. There's nobody in the community that watches that happen that doesn't think that that person got what they deserved because they think, I'd never want to be in that spot. So it happens immediately right in the court. They lay down, they get beaten right in front of everybody. So that person can get up when they're done and go to the market the next day. And everybody in the market realizes they've paid their dues. They've paid their debt to society. We have balance again. And that person can move about and do things. Paul listed getting whipped as one of his credentials as a new believer. This is awesome. Second Corinthians 11, 24. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. The 40 stripes minus one is the Jewish tradition. So they read this thing no more than 40. So they gave Paul the maximum punishment, but they would do minus one because sometimes the whipper would lose count and they didn't want to get cursed for going over 40. So the max that in Jewish tradition they would do is 39 whippings minus one. So when Paul says Jesus is God, maximum punishment for blasphemy. So five times he got whipped that many times and he's able to get up afterwards and go preach back in the main town center. And this is why they ran him out of the town or they tried to stone him because he could get up and he was, his debt was paid to society. Did it five times. It's crazy. The Romans, however, whipped Jesus to the point where he would have died even if he didn't go on the cross because the Romans don't have mercy. They didn't do 39 or 40 minus one. They would do as much as it felt like till the guard was too tired to whip anymore because that was the Romans. So principle number six is that there's limits to punishment. Principle number seven is the not humiliate piece, if you're kind of adding these up. Leviticus 19.5 tells the judges that they're to do no unrighteousness, which is a double negative. We're going to give them a pass on that. But the point of a judge is to never do unrighteousness. Your job is to make things right. So if you look at that as the job of the judge, the job of the judge is to never be partial to the person. You do what's just and right without regard to the person, which means you honor everyone because every human life has dignity. Point isn't to humiliate because that's a human being you're dealing with. So the expectation of the judge in Jewish society then is to err on the side of mercy. Because if your job's to never do unrighteousness, then you never want to falsely accuse or falsely punish anybody ever. So they would always rather let a guilty person go free than to punish an innocent person. And I think in most of Western society, that tradition has kind of stayed in place. So let's go back to Luke's point about judging. It's about what kind of judgment we're known for as a people. How do we judge is the question, not whether or not there will be judgment, because there will be judgment in the Old Testament. So if the point is how we judge and to not humiliate and to err on the side of mercy, and we get all that from these kinds of verses, then judgment is about doing it fairly. So Luke says in chapter six, verse 38, he goes on to finish his point, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. (laughs) I think I'm in the King James. Yeah, I am. For with the same measure that you meet, it will be meted unto you. This is really cool. If we are to judge one another as the holy priesthood of Christians, and we have to do some of that inside the body, and we're doing it carefully, and we don't judge the log in somebody else's eye when there's a speck in our own, we're never doing injustice to each other. And we are really careful about that. Because we know that the degree to which we measure out judgment, the have to, like, we don't want to be judging people. And if you don't have to, then don't if you don't have to judge, don't judge. If you don't have to accuse people of things, then don't accuse people of things. So that was Luke's first point. But that idea that when you judge and when you meet out judgment, or you have to meet out judgment, God's going to watch how you do it and you should do it fairly with regard to the human that you're judging. And that's the whole point that Luke's making in chapter six. Really kind of a odd thing how much we have that one verse misused when the whole chapter is about how judging should happen, not that you shouldn't judge at all. In other words, as Christians, you can have discernment and make decisions about what's right and wrong and good and evil because you know the word of God and you know what God has called good and you know what God has called evil. So when somebody tells you to foggy that up and never be discerning, they're doing that not because the word of God says so, But they're doing it because some human or that human is is feeling like they don't want to be judged. This is a tough teaching. It's hard to hear. There will be room for discussion. So, God expects justice. Justification is given, not taken. The condemn the wicked needs to happen. We wicked the wicked. Justice should match the right, the transgression. It shouldn't be excessive. It should be immediate, it should have limits. And it should never be done to humiliate another human being. The point is never humiliation, or public disgrace. So judge, as we would want to be judged. If you're the person on trial, how would you want that judge to treat you? If someone else has an issue with you? How would you want them to handle that issue? Talk to you privately one on one? Or would you want them to shame you in front of the whole crowd? So those principles come up in the New Testament as applied, and in the New Testament, we get the law that sponsors that application, or it fosters and cultivates the New Testament application of that. And if you don't have to judge people, dude, don't, because God's watching how you judge people. And the default should be not to judge other people. Until somebody does something that's clearly against the Word of God, and you may have to address that with them, or God puts you in a position where you're supposed to be judging them. And I don't think anyone in the room is in a judge position in our society, right? So unless you take that job and that calling up, that's not necessarily our place to be doing that, which is the New Testament application of what we just read in Deuteronomy. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh is justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here we are at the end of the law. We're all guilty. We're all going to be judged under that law. If God's judging perfectly, then there is only going to be justification and wicked people. There's no neutral and there's no purgatory. There's only going to be there. If God limits punishment to what's just, not to humiliate or shame people or be cruel to people, we're still going to be judged by what we have done. Okay? If we are judged by this, not by what we think we should be judged by, then God can either justify us or he can judge us. And frankly, this is the kind of just a, something that laid on my heart God can make stones praise his name. He makes a donkey speak his word. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. So if we honor him and we want to be his servants, he'll take us and he'll use us. But he doesn't need us. We need him. And that relationship goes that direction. And it's an important sobering thought for humans to suck that in and and absorb it. So if God can use a donkey, He would rather use you and he's invited you to come into his service and he loves you. He wants you to be there. So this is tough. These are tough verses. If you're avoiding God and you really don't want to hear any of this, and I hope none of you are in that boat, this is an easily dismissed few verses. It really is because you can just pass on these verses and say, I don't even want to get into this. Judgment, whipping, beatings, all this stuff. Or I think, You can take this and misread it and say, oh, God's just a horrible, cruel, mean God. And he likes to beat people, which I think is a total misreading of the limits that are put on that here. When he's come, he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, John 16, 8. The purpose of Christ's second coming is to judge the world. He'll fall in this role where he should. And if someone deserves punishment, they need to get it immediately. So when Christ comes a second time, he's coming to judge. And this is a sobering thought. If you don't wanna hear the word of God and you don't wanna submit to God's will, you just dismiss it, ignore it, mock it, or scoff it. But if you do love the Lord and you do feel like God is good and you meditate on his law and you realize God is merciful and just and holy and right, I wanna be on that team, then you just get ready for judgment by finding yourself a justification because you can't justify yourself. You're in a very precarious situation. But there's more verses to come. Those seeking God, my point being, don't have a trouble with the law. In fact, you go through the whole law and you're like, yeah, I'm kind of cool with all that. It makes total sense to me. Those who don't want to follow the law find ways around it. They either weasel around it or they ignore it. And I have seen this happen again and again. In the workplace, there's usually codes of conduct. Where's Danny at? There she is. Or There's bylaws in an organization. Good people are like, yeah, I'm cool with bylaws. I'll just follow them. No big deal. I'm okay with restraints on my life because they give me freedom. I'm okay with a fence on the playground because it gives me room to play. I'm okay with my parachute when I jump out of a plane because it helps me to have fun and not worry. I'm okay with restraints. Or in the HR world, there's restraints on behavior in the workplace and good people come in and go, yeah, I wouldn't even get near those things. Holy moly yeah, I'm fine with those restraints. But then you get weasel people. And weasel people will actually sit at home and spend time reading bylaws so that they can get around them. Because they don't want to follow the rules. They want to do it their own way. Or they'll go into HR departments and they'll find some mistake in the wording so that they can sue the organization. Those are weasel people. Or the Bible would call them wicked. Because they're just trying to do their own will instead of just doing what the rules say and just following the rules. And being safe within those. So if you want to go your own way, you can keep the letter of the law and not the spirit. That was the mistake the Pharisees made. They did everything according to the letter of the law, forty whips minus one to make sure we follow the law, but they were whipping people all the time, five times for Paul, for the same crime. So they missed the spirit of the law altogether. And this is where Jesus came to and is just like, You guys are so rotten on the inside, but on the outside you're like whitewashed tombs, you're beautiful but you're so sick on the inside because you're always trying to weasel around the law. We're at the end of Deuteronomy's law section, so I was like, gotta make that point. You either hate the law or you just read it and go, yeah, I'm cool with it. I can live within that or try to. So there's mercy that can be had everywhere in the law. You may judge people if you determine to give a punishment. There's room for mercy everywhere in the spirit of the law But the Pharisees don't even see that, they're just blind to it. So the next verse seems really out of place if you're just buzzing through this. But if you're reading the spirit of the law in those first three verses and you realize there can be mercy, then read the next verse. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. You know what, you can have mercy even with your working animals on a farm. Because muzzling the ox while it treads out the grain, I should probably explain that because some people may not get farms or even animal labor on farms. In the ancient world, an animal would get hooked up to a rock or a heavy grindstone, and they would pull the grindstone over the grain to pulverize it into flour, into like that powder that we use to cook with. So if you have an ox that's stamping out the grain and doing this again and again and again, it's a horrible job because they're literally hauling a sledge across concrete. So the, the point is that there's not enough that weight is is enough to pulverize grain pieces. And then they let the wind carry the chaff away, which is another teaching. So wouldn't it be odd if your ox had to work all day in the hot Mediterranean heat, and then it couldn't even eat some of the food that it was walking over? Wouldn't that just be cruel? So God puts it in his law. This is a you shall, by the way, verse 4. It's a law. You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads with the grain. Let the ox eat some food. If it's going to have to walk over a grain all day, that'd be like having a dog treat in your pocket and never hooking your dog up all day. So they have all this hope of food and they serve you faithfully all day and then they get nothing? That's cruel. So when you put this next to how judges should act in the courtroom, it starts to make this is about mercy as much as it's about judgment. And then it keeps keeps going. So again, for those that are interested in this, or not interested in the way of God, you're like, eh, okay, so don't muzzle the ox while you do the grain. For those that really want to get to know the character of God, God cares about hope. And even the lowest of beasts in the middle of their labor should have hope that they're going to get hooked up with some good food. Because it's all about the food. You guys know me. Yeah. So what do I learn about God from this? I learned practically... God actually cares about the animals. And you should be nice even to animals. And you wonder if God says, be nice to the least of these. In context, he's talking about the kids. But maybe even cares about how we treat animals. And he's watching how we do that. So as a nice example, sometimes we throw food in the woods just to hook up the wildlife, you know, because they need some food sometimes too, and not have to go working for it and get something nice from the barbecue. Applied and and don't take my word for it, this gets applied by Paul. He takes this verse 4 and he uses it to explain much bigger concepts. So if you go to 1 Corinthians, actually hold a finger there because I'll be back in Romans and Corinthians throughout the night. And Isaiah, if you really want to use your whole bookmarking system. 1 Corinthians 9. This is just beautiful what Paul does with this. Verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. For it's written in the law of Moses. Where is it written? Chapter 25, verse four. It's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? Or say, says he altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt this is written. He that ploweth should plow in hope. And he that thresheth in a hope should be a partaker of hope. So again, I'm plagiarizing. The whole point of verse four is hope, according to Paul. And he's using this in terms of like pastors getting paid. Like he's trying to explain in Corinthians that somebody shouldn't labor in the spiritual world and not have hope of getting some fruit from that. Like you should be able to go out and do ministry and maybe there's some blessing, like somebody gets saved. That's the hope of what we do. And you should do that. So why would God just talk about oxen in his thing is Paul's point. This isn't just about oxen. This is about God caring enough about hope in our labors that we have reason to labor. And we saw that last week when it was like, you should pay people when they work for you the day they work for you because they have hope. And God cares about hope. God cares about mercy. And that's the character of my God. Like suddenly this looks a lot like Jesus. 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn and the labor is worthy of its reward. So at the same time that there's punishment, there's hope that there might be a reward for those that labor for the king. That's beautiful. And that's how Paul read these verses. If we work the field spiritually, if we go out and we're saturating white bear with videos of Jesus, like the chosen so much better, but I wish we could get them for free. There's hope that there's going to be fruit in what we do. That's why we labor. We will labor week after week after week with no fruit whatsoever, but we hope for the fruit. And we are not dogs to God. We're precious to God. But even a dog deserves a biscuit once in a while. So if you faithfully go and labor for God and you come up empty again and again and again, do you think God's not going to reward that in some way, shape, or form? God would never do that. If you're faithful in the work, God will produce fruit. Sometimes you got to get to work. All right, we'll keep going. I know I geeked out on that a lot. How much time did that take me? Holy cow. Verse five, we will get through this chapter tonight. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Oh my goodness. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother and that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. I love that verse. (laughs) They'll have a little talk with him. But if he stands firm and says, I don't want to take her, Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face and answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has had his sandal removed. I love this passage. Like, you know when Jesus would tell a parable and his disciples would be like, Rabbi, what the heck does that mean? And he would have to explain it. And he's, oh, we're talking about the spiritual kingdom. What we get with this verse, first of all, I'm going to make this case. We're going to do a lot of cross references here. It's a parable. God's, Jesus tells parables because there's stuff in the Old Testament that's like the weirdest crap in the world. But when you apply it, it's like, holy moly. So in the same way that we have that, if there's a dispute between brothers, this is what's going to happen. And you get these ideas of like, mercy, and then you get the grain with the ox and there's hope. What's buried in this? What does this mean? It means you don't take care of women, they may spit on you. That's the practical application. This can happen. Here's the way this works. A guy dies, but in Israel, remember, each family had an inheritance of land and property. So God's interest is that that land and property stays in the family because the inheritance goes to the family or the community that owns that property. So a guy dies and then you got this wonderful young woman who doesn't have a baby yet. And there's nobody left to take the name of that father, carry it on so the land stays in the family. So the brother's job, and this is when they live in the land stuff, right? In the practical sense, the brother's job was then to marry the wife. Notice there's two verbs there, go into her and take her as a wife. Um, We'll talk about that in a second if you don't know what that means. And then, then when she gets pregnant, the son takes on the name of the original father, the dead father, and that becomes the firstborn of the dead, which is the name that this law traditionally gets. It's called the law of the firstborn of the dead. So this is how dead people can have kids. Odd law. Are we all in the same boat? This is a weird law but it's, it's really important we understand this. In fact, God's going to give the Jews 1,500 years to absorb the law of the firstborn of the dead before its first actual spiritual application. But it's really important. A dead person can have kids, and that kid gets the full inheritance of the father. You with me so far? This is super cool stuff. Ruth 4, by the way, there's no sandals involved. Or I'm sorry, there's no spit involved. There is sandals. Um, the sandal is a symbol for relinquishing your claim or your inheritance. So if the brother doesn't do this, like, I don't know why you wouldn't do this, like, because we're assuming the brother's not married, right? So this is a perfectly viable young woman that he can marry that was good enough for the older brother. So it's not about love here. This is about responsibility marriage. And we don't really do that anymore today. But taking off the sandal is to relinquish the claim. A sandalless person is someone who has no peace because they don't have a place to settle. So notice when Paul sets up the armor of God, what is the piece of, of of clothing that goes with peace? The sandals. Because they're people that can reside somewhere and be okay with where they're at. There's a peace that comes with that. So God sees a path for a family name to continue, even if there's a death that shouldn't have happened as early as it did. So, the law sustains the line of the dead is what it does. This is crazy. When the first husband dies, the woman gets redeemed or picked up by the brother. And then the bride widow is then giving life to the dead brother's person. So it's an odd law, but it's all over. Judah and Tamar or Tamar back in Genesis 38 is a very similar situation where the brother took her in. Um, and a lot of ancient cultures do this. A lot of Middle Eastern cultures still do this. So it's not an odd practice outside of Judeo-Christian Western society. It actually still happens around the world where the family is tied to the land and there are agrarian cultures that kind of apply this even today where it just happens this way. So Isaiah makes sense of this law law in a very different way. So flip to Isaiah because we're going to go a lot starting in chapter 50. And Isaiah takes this law and applies it to prophecy about the Messiah. He skips the spitting part, which makes me really sad because I think that's part of the... I just imagine this scene with this very angry young lady, probably like 16 years old, and she literally throws the shoe at him and spits at him and shames him in front of the whole thing because the point of punishment is not humiliation, but this is humiliation. The point of this is to humiliate the person. You see how this connects? to the beginning of the chapter. verse uh, Isaiah chapter 50, if you just glance at it quick, Israel is getting divorced by God because they've been adulterous, and adultery is one of the only causes for divorce. So God's covenant with Israel is going to get cut off, and he sends a servant among them to talk to them, but they don't like his servant. So in Isaiah 50, God isn't going to put Israel away forever. He gives them hope in the middle of this punishment that they have. So God sees that Israel's dead in their sin. The priesthood is going to leave a widow of a faithful woman behind. There's all these good, decent people that the priesthood is just going to not be serving anymore. And they're going to abandon this poor bride that's out there without a husband, without a bridegroom and god sends a servant to claim the bride in isaiah and the servant gets abused by israel and he becomes an offering in the same moment like they give him up as an offering sound familiar so this son or servant that god sends to claim the bride is in order to get the inheritance to the right people isaiah and i'll flip to isaiah 53 And we're going to find out what happens to this servant in Isaiah 53. This is, if you don't, if you like don't know where to go in the Old Testament, just go to Isaiah 53 and it will just encourage you because you'll recognize what this sounds like. Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, in the Hebrew that's a sham, it's actually a trespass offering. Leviticus chapter five, chapter six. He shall see his seed and inheritance, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's this servant that's going to get beat that God is in love with and this servant is going to prosper even after grief. Huh. Well, this is weird. So the servant's going to bear spiritual children? How does this work? And like for 1500 years the rabbis tried to sort out Isaiah 53 if you get today's Bible, they've just removed Isaiah 53 because it looks a lot like Jesus. So they just take this stuff out of the Torah. They take the name and the family rights of Israel because the servant is there to claim the rights of that bride. Under this law in Deuteronomy, Isaiah 53 verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied because when you work, there should be hope, right? You don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. He shall see the labor of his soul. The heart of this servant is to claim the bride and he's going to put in work to do that and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. What does it mean to justify? To make something straight or right. To make the paths straight. See verse one of our Deuteronomy chapter. For he shall bear their iniquities. See verse two of the chapter that we're in right now. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. So the servant's going to die. Well, how does the servant who just gained the favor of God have an inheritance? Because dead people don't have inheritance, do they? Dead people don't make children, right? Dead people can't do any of those things. If the dead can't get the portion and they are dead, Isaiah 53:12, how do they make kids? How does inheritance even begin to happen? God passes the inheritance of the dead brother, the dead priesthood of of Israel, and he hands that inheritance over to this servant who's come to claim the bride. All these good people in Israel that love the Lord, that aren't being served by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Isn't this cool? All right. It keeps going though. It gets even better. If he poured out his soul on his death, then what happens? Flip to Isaiah 54. Let's go to the next chapter real quick. So under God's servant, the bride is put away, but that bride's going to produce more than the law ever did. The law doesn't make the bride happy, but the servant's going to make the bride happy. And so then it goes to Isaiah 54 verse 1. Uh, The woman comes to the city gates, all the elders are there, and now she has these legal rights. And Isaiah 54 verse one says, sing, O barren, woman who hasn't had kids yet. You have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud for you have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. So there's not going to be a physical birth, but you're going to have more kids than You can dream of. And instead of being sad and spitting and throwing sandals, which is the way the world does it, you're going to be singing songs because you're going to see what just happened. That death that was supposed to make you mourn, you're not going to mourn. You're going to be singing hallelujah. How does that happen? Oh my goodness, my page got cut off. I guess the Lord wanted me to skip that point. Okay. That was odd. All right. So this woman is singing in Isaiah instead of spitting and cursing. Yeah. And then she's weeping, but why is she weeping? And it's the question that gets asked, you know, why are you weeping? And it's the same question, by the way, that the angels and Jesus asked Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Why are you weeping? A woman with no husband. And it's like, when you see that, and you know, the law, I, you know, there had to be Jewish people just bawling when they read the gospels, when they first saw them. Like, is that what happened at the tomb? They said, why are you weeping? Have these people read Isaiah? Yeah, they had. Why are you weeping? Because there's shame when there's no inheritance and there's nothing going forward. There's no hope anymore. The mu- you've been muzzled. We live on this pathetic, sad earth, and there's no hope left of course you're weeping. The only hope you had was this servant that had gotten God's favor and God loved and adored him. And now he's in a grave and he's dead. And it happens exactly like Isaiah said it was going to happen. And then you get to Isaiah 54 verse four, don't fear for you will not be ashamed. That shame is what we're dealing with in Deuteronomy right now. You won't be ashamed, nor will you be disgraced for you will not be put to shame for you will forget the shame of your youth and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. So who's going to redeem God's people? Who's going to claim that right when the person who could do it was in a grave? Isaiah 54 verse five, for your maker is your husband. God is actually the husband that's claiming you. Whoa, surprise, it's not a servant. It's actually God that's the one claiming you. The Lord of hosts is his name and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Surprise, you're being claimed as a bride. All the good people of the world are being claimed as a bride by God himself. Before the wrath, Casey's got the DVD, it's on the table. If you wanna know what a Jewish wedding looks like, when you know the law and you watch that, you will be weeping. If you have any heart at all, unless you're stone cold, because it's beautiful what's going on right here your maker's your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Surprise, he's showing up to pick you up and you don't even know when he's going to come. He's just going to come like a thief in the night with little, you know, lanterns in the cornfields and he's going to shout with his friends and they're going to come and pick you up and claim you. He's actually got the rights, the inheritance of the entire earth because he's a sacrifice. He's been He's been given that because he's the son of God himself. He actually has the right and the inheritance, not of a little pl- plot of land in Israel, but the whole planet is his. And now as his bride, we get to have fruit without bearing children. Like, I don't even know how that happens. If you're reading this literally, how does that in the world happen? How do we have kids and we don't even have real childbirth to make them? It's because God's talking about spiritual children. The bride will produce way more than, than what we can even imagine. There will be people from all ends of the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that come into the inheritance of the entire world. Isaiah 54, verse 5, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and he's your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I'm going to skip to verse 8, this mercy that's happening here. Because there's no reason for this mercy and this justification. There's just none. But Isaiah 54, verse 8, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for just a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. It looks like he's not around sometimes, but it's just a moment in history. We're going to spend eternity with him. So the law of the firstborn of the dead becomes the Redeemer of God who claims his bride for a new life as God's inheritors and to make many new family members. That's the point of the bride is to make babies, right? Which seems really harsh if you're thinking in very literal terms. But if you're thinking in spiritual terms, it's like, oh, so the whole point Is that we're supposed to be making more people that are following him. And it's all in the law. The beauty of it is it's all in the law. And it wouldn't mean anything if it just happened. But it means everything because God put it in the law. Isaiah prophesied and explained it in his prophecies. And then it actually happened. And you're like, holy moly. So let's turn to the New Testament now. Go to 1 Peter. And we'll see how the new bride starts to celebrate this moment, this thing that the firstborn of the dead is making babies. And it's amazing what's going on. And they connect it right to Christ. So that's not just me making that connection. This is what they're doing. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, be put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So you only have to be punished once. That's all that matters. Once it's done, the sins are gone as far as the East is from the West. The point isn't to humiliate, the point's to bring balance back. The just for the unjust. God is deemed just by God the Father, or Jesus is deemed just by God the Father, and he's taking the sacrificial place of the unjust, making them just through his sacrifice. He takes the death penalty. It's not just a whipping. He gets that too. And then he gets the death penalty. So it really doesn't matter what sin, because the death penalty is the most of all sins that you can be punished for. That's the consequence. Let's go back to one phrase. I told you I'd go back to this. (laughs) Because I have to. It says that the brother's duty is to go into her. What's interesting there is they have words for sex. But this is a euphemism. Go into her is could be interpreted as actually literally the male going into the female, but they don't use the word for that, which exists in the Hebrew. Instead, they keep it really general. And the English is a great translation, go into her, which could be meaning a bunch of different things. In fact, it can mean physically going into somebody or it can mean, and that phrase go into someone else is used over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible for spiritual entrance. So when we see um, in the New Testament, when demons go into a person, they use the same phrase. And then when we go forward and Christ goes into the church, the duty of that brother when he takes his bride, it's actually a spiritual going into, and it actually fits the law perfectly. Because the law doesn't use the literal word for sex, it uses a vague word like go into her. So when the Holy Spirit of Jesus comes into us, He's claiming us as his bride according to the law perfectly. So they didn't make a mistake, I guess. They actually meant it that way. So when Christ goes into the church, he fills it. It's not just me saying that. Acts 2.4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Same phrase. And it began. they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see in the New Testament, that's actually what happens at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit goes into the bride and the bride starts making converts. And the bride bears more children than the bride could have ever imagined. Further, (laughs) this is even crazier, the brothers of Christ have a duty to take care of the bride of Christ to carry on the line of Christ. So who are the brothers of Christ and how do you take on the name of somebody? So we got to unpack that too. Verse 6 in our Deuteronomy section, says, it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. Got that? So Acts chapter four, both 10, 18, throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see disciples getting beaten and notice what they get beat for. They don't get beat for breaking the law. They get beat for taking the name of Jesus. And claiming the name of Jesus. We see it throughout the New Testament. The thing they get punished for by the world is that they took up the name of Jesus, just like verse six says in the law. They're taking the name of somebody. That's what the Jewish people persecuted them for. It's what the Roman people killed them for. It's what they're accused of, and it's how they introduced themselves. Right? So the brothers are responsible to take care of the bride by taking the name of that dead brother and carrying it forward so that there will be an inheritance. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled the church and they taught a great many people. So there's this year in the book of Acts that gets covered in one sentence. But what happens during that year? The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's a big deal. And we take it for granted. We use the word Christian like we use the word Christmas. It doesn't mean much because we've used it since we were babies. But when you call yourself a Christian, you're taking on the name of Christ as your own definition. You become then Zach Christian, Michael Christian. I just covered three of you at once, right? Britta Christian. That's your name now. You've taken on the name of Christ when you call yourself a Christian. You've taken up his banner. We've seen that law before too. I just think this stuff's the coolest thing in the world. So, you see this idea that when we take the Lord's name as our own name, we take it for granted, and they didn't do that. They made a point of it saying, This is when we first called ourselves Christians. We gathered for a year, we studied the word, and we said, We're taking on the name of Christ. I think they read Deuteronomy 25 and they realized our job is to take up the name of Christ. So, they called themselves Christians because they were reading this. Isaiah 62:10, build up the highway, take out the stones. See Deuteronomy 19 and lift up the banner for the people. We too were once dead, but were made alive in Christ, just like he was dead and then he was made alive. He was the firstborn of the dead, we're the second, third, 15th million of the dead. Like we're all renewed from the dead. And then you get this, 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You see how chapter 25 fits together for the New Testament people? They sum it up in a sentence. Justification and taking up the name and owning that bride. It's a big deal, and it all fits together. Otherwise, you're just reading it, and you're like, these are random laws, but they're not random to the disciples at all. Deuteronomy 25 was a comprehensive worldview that they're laying out here. Romans 8.16 The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we might be glorified together. We're the brothers and the sisters. What's the glory that's to be had there? What's the inheritance that we're now qualified for? I'm going to go to Colossians on this one. Because Colossians, they lay this whole thing out. And you're like, man, that's super cool. Where'd they get that from? Now you know they got that from Deuteronomy 25. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us as partakers in the inheritance of the saints of light. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we've redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And for him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, catch this, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. What do you get to inherit? pretty much everything. Which makes you wonder why people aren't serving the king. Like if that's the inheritance, like you read that Colossians verse and you get to be a co-heir with Christ, and then you get verse 7 back in Deuteronomy, but if a man doesn't want to take his brother's wife, then what? Man spit on you, shoe in your face. You are you're a knucklehead. Pick the right team for crying out loud, God's offered you the inheritance of, well, all that Colossians stuff. Like everything, seen and unseen, spirit, not, heaven, earth, you name it, it's all God's, you got it all. God's going to give you everything, or you're going to, for some idiotic reason, be the brother that says, I don't want this bride. What kind of dork are you? Like, grow up, realize what you're passing up on. So, you know, Ephesians 6, 15 is the gospel of peace, the sandals of the gospel of peace. This is the good news. This is the peace. You're going to be justified. Your transgressions are gone. That should give you some peace. You're going to inherit everything. That should give you some peace. So put on those shoes and stand your ground. Know who you are in Christ and know that it goes all the way back to the law that we're talking about a 3,500 year old law that came true 2,000 years ago and was fulfilled. I love how Colossians even cites it. This is the law of the firstborn of the dead. And you're now part of it. Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And whoever doesn't believe on him is going to have a sandal thrown in their face. And yeah, that's a little comical. But I don't want God's sandal hitting my face. How big is God's sandal? And how much will that hurt? I don't want to be ground out. Do you want to be judged? Beginning of Deuteronomy 25. Or do you want the inheritance of the dead? The beautiful inheritance of the creator God of the world that goes all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. It all comes back to this. By the way, we're getting to the end of the Torah. And you can see where Genesis 1.1 connects all the way back into this, right? Verse 13, you shall not have in your... Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 11. It keeps going. Verse 11, if two men fight together. And the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts her hand and seizes him by the genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall not pity her. This is the law of don't kick guys in the nards. (laughs) How else do you read that? So leave the guy alone that way. So again, the principle here is fight fair. And there's an inheritance that we just got done talking about, right? So there's a belief amongst the Jewish people that hurting someone in that area may have something to do with the inheritance that could possibly be coming later. So you don't do that. Um, This speaks of the culture that Moses was in. They wouldn't make a sign if this kind of thing didn't happen. So it was the cruelest, harshest thing you could do to a guy is destroy his hope. It's like muzzling the ox. And if there's no hope of a generation to come, that can be a really hard thing. So God determines if that's going to happen or not, but it shouldn't be an intentional thing that humans do to one another. Uh, and you got to know the Hebrew word for genitals, mabush. Just case, if you want to write that down and take note of it, mabush. It literally means privates or something that's secret to a guy. Your privates. I'm going to move on. Verse 13, <laughs> you shall not have in your bag different weights, a heavy and a light you should not have in your house differing measures, large and small. You should have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days might be lengthened in the land which the Lord God is giving to you. Fair weights means fair trading. Like, cause you could weigh out the grain and then put a lightweight in if you were selling to make more grain. And then if you were buying, you can put the heavyweight on. So you, you get how that works. So in the ancient world, you'd have people that cheated by putting different kinds of weights on the scales. So you got two principles. verses 11 and 12, fight fair. If you're going to be the bride and taken into the bridehood, fight fair. Don't do things to be cruel and mean. Verse 13, 14, and 15, trade fair and do fair business with other people. Just be straight up and honest with people. Don't try to rip people off. Deuteronomy 12:32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. Don't add to it or take away from it. This one's kind of literally, don't add or take away to your weights. Judge fairly. Verse 16, for all who do such things and behave unrighteously are an abomination of the Lord your God. So that behaving unrighteously, being an abomination means if you do things that aren't right, you're, that's a summative statement. You're as abominable as a murderer it all weighs out. See Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You're just as bad as the person you think you're better than. Because if you're unrighteous in any way, you're an abomination to the Lord. So who's he going to take as his bride, the justified or the wicked? And then he says something like, you're all guilty. So one act of cheating will make you a cheater. One act of adultery makes you an adulterer. One little lie makes you a liar. You're defined by those things that God says anyone who's unrighteous is abominable to Him you can't take that person as his bride. So if you don't accept the gift of God's justification, and you're being put to shame, or the bride is throwing her shoe at you, it puts you in danger of damnation. See Mark chapter 3 verse 29. Or to say it best, and I'll kind of wrap up with this in the last few verses about the Amalekites. In the movie Princess Bride, Princess Buttercup does a bad thing, and she becomes Queen Buttercup to a bad king. You guys have seen this movie? Am I really dating myself? Really, there's a lot of shaking heads here. And a lady's out in the audience, and she's this old, nasty, gnarled hag. And she starts shouting at Queen Buttercup. And she says, boo, boo, boo. Have you seen this scene? people are laughing that have. And then she says, why are you doing this? Because she just got married. She says, because you had love in your hands. And you gave it up. Your true love lives And yet you marry another. I'm trying to do my old lady voice. True love saved her in the fire swamp. And she treated it like garbage. And that's what she is. She's the queen of refuse. So bow down to her if you want. Bow to her. Bow to the queen of slime. The queen of filth. The queen of putrescence. So yeah, verse 16. Right? Shame on you. If you want to go on that team and reject love, you're an abomination. It's just sad. I'm saying you. I don't mean actually anybody personally. I'm hoping you're all on the right side of this. Like you joyfully took the new bride and took up the name of, her, of the, the dead, the firstborn of the dead. Yeah, take a yeah. bad Inherit the world or get yelled at by an old hag and called the queen of slime. That's your option. For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. Nobody gets a free pass on this. 1 Corinthians 4.13, Being defamed, we entreat, being made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of things until now. I don't write these things to shame you, but all of my beloved children to warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you don't have many fathers. In Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. I'm the bride, and you became a believer, and you became a child of God through the gospel. No actual childbirth happening there, but you have children, and you have people that are training people in. You have disciples, and you have new believers. You have disciples, and you have disciplers. The word abomination means exactly what we think it means. It's disgusting it's filth, it's slime, it's refuge. And we don't say those things to each other to shame each other. We say those things to each other to bring us to truth so that we can be redeemed and we can be elevated to God's perfect, blameless, holy child. Or verse 17, remember the Am- Amalekites. Amalekites, remember what they did to you when you're coming out of Egypt? That's in Exodus 17. They were cheap attackers that went after the weak and the kids and the stragglers. They were just like wolves hunting a deer pack. Verse 18, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear flanks, all the stragglers at your rear. And when you were tired and wearied and he did not fear God, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land, which your Lord is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek, Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So don't give the Amalekites a second thought. When we clearly know God's love for us, we should hate the flesh. And the Amalekites are always an image of the flesh in the Old Testament. From the actual instance, they get used that way again and again. So we don't give the Amalekites a second thought. We blot out their remembrance. They were supposed to get rid of the Amalekites, but they don't. Joshua fights them, Gideon fights them, Saul fights them, David fights them. They just keep showing up again and again and again because even after we're the bride of Christ, we still struggle with the flesh. And there's still it's just going to be a remain because it's hard to get rid of all of it. So I think it's interesting when you get people that are kind of weak in their faith or or even skeptics or people against the faith, they don't go after the champions of the faith head on. They go after the weak people. They go after the people that aren't rooted in the word. They try to lure people away who they think are susceptible to it. You know, I've watched people do this. So um, the Amalekites are going to be around forever. Haman's one of the last ones. He actually plots to kill all the Jewish people. So they keep coming back because they hate the people of God. And those who are Christ have been crucified in the flesh. We crucify our passions and desires. 1 Peter 4, 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. You kill the flesh so the spirit can live. And then you got people that like the like the, um, the Gnostics that took that literally. Like this is all kind of like the ideas you're dealing with your sins so that you can be alive in Christ, right? He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Notice in Deuteronomy, that you're supposed to blot out the sin, blot out the Amicalites, but God's not going to blot you out. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, Revelations 3.5. The whole point here isn't that we get blotted out. The point is that we blot out the sin, or we blot out the Amicalites. So you got the name of Jesus, firstborn of the dead, giver of life, inheritor of promises, the one that claimed the bride, bearing the children of the Holy Spirit, who takes up the name and the inheritance of God, the creator, so that we can be justified, clothed in white by a perfect and holy judge who judges fairly and not to humiliate, who knows our hearts and our will, and the wicked will be shamed and put away and spat upon and have sandals thrown at them, and the righteous will be taken into the people of God and become inheritors and children of God. So you blot out the flesh or you get blotted out. There's judgment or there's inheritance. And it's the choice that's persistent through the rest of the Bible. Or as Galadriel says, stray but a little and it will fail to the ruin of all, yet hope remains while the company is true. I just like that. Pick it. Get on the right team. If you're not on the right team, make a choice. If you're waffling with the flesh and playing with it, kill it. Get rid of it. If there's sin in your life, end it. Get a brother or sister to help you do that. Like Be accountable to people. And together as a community, we can get that sin out of your life, but you got to talk about it. Satan loves things that are hidden. And those amicalites like to hide and they come and get you when you're weak. And they get you when you're away from the body and when you're straggling behind. So you stay with the team and get off that right team and do battle with the amicalites. So All right. One way to look at Deuteronomy 25 is a bunch of random laws that are like addendums at the end of the law. Or I would suggest to you tonight, a second way to read Deuteronomy 25 is it's a comprehensive image of the choice that we all get put right at the end of the law that gets carried out and explained progressively through the prophets and through the New Testament that this is the plan God has for people and he had it from the beginning. And you just go, praise God that he's that perfect and it all just fits. Or you can just say that's just for the Israelites when they were in the land and we, don't, we still don't hit guys below the belt and we just want to be careful to not muzzle our oxes and we can take it all literally. But I don't think Paul took it literally. I don't think the gospel writers took it literally. And Isaiah certainly didn't take it literally. They took these as spiritual principles that reflect God's character and our character and our relationship to God. Amen? Dear Lord, we just love you. And Lord help us to be those with eyes to see. Help us to see you and have you revealed to us, Lord. We can't even take it all in at once. It's hard to even put our brain around the entire book of the law that we're getting through. It's hard for us to settle on one thought and absorb it. But Lord, help us to know this that we are your bride. And Lord, we are called to be your bride. And Lord, shame on anyone that doesn't see that and lord help us to just have love and 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 invite people into that relationship lord as you are a a groom waiting on his bride help us to be pure and spotless uh lord not because we can or in our own flesh we can do it but lord help us to do battle with the flesh constantly and consistently lord help us to give hope to people uh to be really thoughtful even the the people we think um are beyond hope, Lord. Help us to never muzzle that and never, never reduce people below our own fragile state. Um, Help us to lift up and give dignity to human beings, Lord. Help us to never humiliate. And Lord, if we're ever in a position where we have to make judgment calls around people, help us to do it fairly and wisely and to show mercy more often than not. Help us, Lord, to look like you and be like you because we love you. Um, Lord, we just seek you with all that we have. Lord, I pray a blessing on each person in this room tonight. May you help them to go forth this week and take up your name. And to take up your name, Lord, with just the joy and elation and the song of the bride in Isaiah that we sing and we do not mourn. For you are risen and you are not dead. And Lord, we just love you and we're so excited to take up that name of that inheritance and we accept that gift uh, with everything we can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.